This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. You will find it on page 1 of your few Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we can get rolling. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us this morning, and I ask that you would help us think about grand and glorious, big realities, and I I ask this morning that you would help us uh, bring those big questions into kind of a sharper, finer point. I ask that you would help us not leave with fuzzy ideas or cloudy, foggy kind of concepts about where you're speaking to us, about where you're convicting us and comforting us and strengthening us. I ask that you would give us specifics this morning in our heart and soul. I ask as we we think about you, as we meditate, on the powerful reality of your creation, um, I ask that you would bring that down into the granular realities of our lives. I ask that we wouldn't leave with broad, sweeping generalizations, but we would leave with specific places in our hearts that you're kind of poking because you love us and you don't want to leave us in areas where we're deluded or deceived or hurting. Would you connect things for us this morning? Would you make us humble this morning? Would you help us live under your mighty hand and your loving reign this morning, I ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, for the next uh, five weeks or so, before we start the Sermon on the Mount from uh, Matthew chapter 5, I want us to talk about some core convictions about the normal Christian life. And I'm going to use, I'm going to utilize our mission statement to do that. I'm going to use our mission statement to do that. See, uh, mission statements can drift or they can fall into disrepair. They can become outdated. Some things change in organizations to the extent that the mission statement needs to change also. And sometimes the mission becomes clouded or diluted in such a way that recalibration is necessary. And that's, that goes for churches as well. 
So at this point in the life of our church, what I want to do is I want to take a moment and what I want to do is I want to consider some fundamental Christian realities, some fundamental Christian concepts that you do find kind of folded into our mission statement. I want to, I want to talk about some fundamental understandings that our mission statement requires. Our mission statement has baked into it a lot of assumptions and presuppositions about what a Christian is and what it means to walk with Jesus. It has a worldview baked into it, and it's a worldview that in today's day we can't take for granted. We can't really assume. We can't assume that our people remember certain kind of core realities or are even still in line with them. So my point in the next few weeks is not to hype us up it's not to like kind of drum up emotional loyalty or anything like that. My point in this series isn't to convince you that our mission statement is perfect because it isn't or that it'll be around forever because I don't know what will happen. My point is to take something that's here in our church and make plain varied textures and real life implications of what it means to live the Christian life. My point is to revisit some key aspects some central aspects of what it means to be a believer living out the mission of God through how we live every single day. Some of the key or central understandings that will, will be more like topical teaching over these next five weeks, and some of them will be more like expositional teaching around a certain text. And we need both of these kinds of teaching and understanding and study as Christians. And I'm convinced that we need to be diligent to keep our foundations strong in the time that we live in. There's a, there's a trend of deconstruction across the church and in the West. So I want to spend some time not necessarily talking about that, but what I want to talk about is construction. And in doing that, I want to spend some time on foundations. So I want to focus on fundamentals, and I'm going to talk a lot about the implications of what it means to be a created being, created by a real, living, all-powerful God. The fact that that is a reality is foundational for an accurate Christian worldview. And if you find your foundation cracking or crumbling underneath the pressures of life right now, if you find yourself unstable or unsturdy, I hope that this message helps give some strengthening or some foundational repairs. I'm going to focus on the first two words of our mission statement. We exist. We exist. And I'm not going to go anywhere else. I want to name some of the fundamental presuppositions that the Christian worldview holds and has held in its, uh, for all its history. I want to talk about non-negotiables. If you don't know what a presupposition is, an easy way to remember or an easy way to think about it is like this. The fact is, is that we all make assumptions every day about every part of our lives. You don't wake up and wonder if gravity will still work today. You don't wake up and wonder if you're still going to be the same person that you were yesterday. You assume the gravity will work. You assume the kind of cohesiveness of your own personal identity through the course of time. That's an assumption that you make every day. And we make assumptions about our assumptions. These kind of pre-assumptions are what I'm talking about when I say pre-suppositions. The assumptions that you make so that you can make other assumptions are your presuppositions. And like the gravity example, you assume the gravity will work because you already presume a world that makes sense. 
You presume a world that operates with some kind of logical, consistent reasoning. You presume that you are who you are and that's a stable, consistent reality even though your hair length changes and your clothes change and your size might change and every cell in your body will be replaced every seven years. So our mission statement has a worldview baked into it with its own presuppositions. And I want to start by examining the implications of acting like we exist as creatures. And I want to talk about what it means to exist from a distinctly Christian perspective, a distinctly Christian view of the universe. A distinctly Christian worldview sees mankind in a certain way. And I want to talk about a couple of those realities. I want to talk about how we exist as creatures first and foremost. We don't originate ourselves. We don't create ourselves. And I want to talk about how we exist as sinners, second, and also universally. And uniquely as Christians, I want to talk about how we exist as new creations. So universally, all human beings exist as creatures. Universally, all human beings exist as sinners. And uniquely, Christians exist as new creation. So first, creaturehood or creatureship is that essential quality of existing as as a created being. I know that I'm talking about the basics here, but continually I'm shocked by how much truth that we could assume 30 years ago can't be assumed in our day. So let me make two biblical statements about being creatures. We were created out of nothing and we were created in God's image. God created the universe ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing. When God created the world, he did it out of nothing. The Bible's plain and clear. At one time in history, nothing existed. Nothing except the living God, and out of him came everything. Everything. There was nothing outside of himself that he used to create you or the universe. And we are the only created beings that are made in God's image. We reflect the very image of our creator to the rest of the world. That has implications for us. That has implications for every human being in the world. Every single human being on the planet needs to know for their own good that they're not in charge. They're not God. You're not God. I'm not God. God is God. And we are his creation. The universe owes its existence to God. That's baked in. It's a baked in assumption about human beings in this church. We aren't merely the product of chance. We aren't very intelligent animals. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. We were created out of nothing and we were created in the image of God. And hearing that we were created and we don't originate in ourselves tends to make us squirm as human beings. Tends to make us balk as human beings. We tend to deny our creature-ness or our created-ness in lots of ways, but I want to talk about just three ways that we deny that we owe our existence to God. We deny that we're created by God through a demand to self-define or self-identify. We deny that we are created through self-worship 
and we deny that we are created beings through how we are self-absorbed. Psalm 139 says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Jeremiah 32 says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth. Ephesians 2 says, We are God's handiwork. Isaiah 40 says that God is the creator of the ends of the earth. Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Psalm 124, Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, and on and on and on. The rest of the Bible assumes that God created everything, including you. But we want to create ourselves in the image of other people and other things and other ideas. By self-identification, what I mean is that we want to tell the world and we want to tell God what we are and who we are. We don't think like God has any say in our own self-perceptions because we don't think he does. We'll decide our own identity. We'll decide what we think of ourselves. We'll make up who we think we are and how we think we should be treated without much thought of God at all. There are times when God is outright opposed, but most of the time, God's just ignored as we go on thinking about ourselves and talking about ourselves and arranging our lives. Every single screen that comes at you in your life is telling you to decide who you are, that you have the power to do it and you can figure it out that it's up to you. Every media outlet treats human beings like they're God and is telling you to create yourself. God decides who you are, where you were born, what family you have, how much money or poverty you have, how smart or dull, how tall or short. God decided every single thing about you. And he says that you're fearfully and wonderfully made and knowing that about yourself is a good thing. You can try to be the constructor of your own identity, but it'll fail. It'll prove hollow and empty and prove to be pure vanity. You're not whoever you say you are. You're created by God, and you, you are who he says you are. Next, we deny, our cre- we, we, we deny that we are creation through self-worship. Romans 1 tells us that humans exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And that's an, expl- that's an explanation, not about other people. That's an explanation to us, for us, about us. It's about what we're all tempted to do. We're all tempted to worship in a horizontal direction instead of in a vertical direction. That is a constant temptation. Human beings are tempted to worship the created thing instead of the creator. And the created thing that we're tempted the most to worship is ourselves. We worship creatures, we worship human beings, and the human being that we're tempted to worship most consistently is the one that we see in the mirror day after day after day. We linger in self-admiration and self-worship and we arrange our lives to magnify ourselves, to magnify our comfort, to magnify our control, to magnify our position, to magnify our platform. And this is constantly demonstrated by our own kind of self-obsession, the temptation to be self 
obsessed and self-focused because billions and billions and billions of dollars are spent every single year to try to get you to believe that you are the most important thing in your life. Billions of dollars. Our culture worships the self, markets to the self, exalts the self. Our culture wants you, wants you to be obsessed with yourself. Phrases like self-compassion and self-love and self-care and self-soothe and self-esteem and self-worth. Phrases like you deserve it and you're worth it are everywhere, are everywhere. And I'm telling you this because I don't want you to be deceived. And the place that I don't want you to be deceived is that I don't want you to think that you're the point. I don't want you to think that you're the point of what we see around us because we aren't the point, not even of our very own lives. God is. God is. You aren't an end in and of yourself. God is. If you want to do what's good for you, if you want to take a moment and do what's beneficial for you, if you're worried about yourself then what you need to do the most is to love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what's best for you. It's what you were created for. Next, we deny that we're created by self, by being self-absorbed. We become self-involved because we believe that we have to look out for ourselves. We have to protect ourselves. We think that we're in charge of making sure that we're okay and healthy and whole. But 2 Samuel 22 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer and my God and my rock. And he's the one in whom I take refuge. He's my shield. He's the horn of my salvation. He's my stronghold. He's my refuge. We tend to be self-focused because it feels necessary. It feels necessary when we forget that we are creatures. It feels appropriate and right. It even seems natural, but God offers us a better way. And this is why he keeps telling his people over and over and over in the Old Testament, don't forget, don't forget, remember who I am, remember what I've done, remember who I am for you. God commands his people to remember his promises in the Old Testament over and over and over again. And God commands his people to remember his power in the Old Testament over and over and over again. And he disciplines them for forgetting. He disciplines them for not remembering. Forgetting in the Old Testament isn't neutral. Being absent-minded in the Old Testament isn't neutral. It's bad for us. It's harmful for us. Being self-focused and self-sufficient feels natural to the part of us that forgets that we're creatures and we're completely dependent on God for every breath and every heartbeat Every time you wake up in the morning, every time anything happens in all of creation, it happens because, listen carefully, God said so. Quite literally. He spoke and it was. We don't have to be paralyzed by self-obsession and self-focus. We can be free from our constant concern for ourselves as we accept the truth that we're powerless compared to God. We're created beings who depend every single second upon their creator. Colossians 1, 
Colossians 1 says about the Lord Jesus, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things consist and hold together because Jesus Christ says so. And the invitation this morning is to not fight that. Don't resist that. Don't avoid that, but embrace it. Rejoice in it and love it. Live under the glory of a God who created everything and sustains everything. Seek for yourself the kingdom of this God. Seek for yourself the face of this God. Seek for yourself the glory of this kind of God in humility by accepting the fact that you are a creature. Seek for yourself his glory. That's the regard, that's the kind of regard for yourself that brings you joy and satisfaction and hope. The kind of focus on a living God, his power and strength, goodness, steadfastness, and wonder. Next, the next reality I want to talk about is that we're also sinners. So we are created That's a fundamental and foundational reality. And the Bible's clear that after human beings were created, they sinned. Theologians refer to this as the fall of mankind. Universally, all humans are creatures and owe everything they have and their very existence to God. And universally, all human beings are sinners. When the first man sinned, he sinned as the head of the entire human race. That is to say, he sinned as the chief representative of the entire human race. In fact, in Romans, we read that in Adam, all sinned, so in Adam, all died. The proof for us that all human beings are sinners is the very fact that all human beings die. And I want us to understand that as a church, we operate under the assumption and commitment to the understanding that all of us, all of us are sinners. We have a nature that's sinful and we choose to behave sinfully. One pithy phrase puts it like this. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We aren't sinners because we commit individual sins. We commit individual sins because we are sinners in our nature. The Bible says we are, by nature, children of wrath. That means without the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, we exist as sinners underneath God's wrath on our sin. One theologian defines sin this way. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. We are morally helpless to change our nature. And without the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in our lives, all our good actions are tainted by that sinful nature. Our intellect, our emotions, our hearts, our goals, our motives, all are corrupted and are full of our sin nature without the transformational work of Jesus Christ in our lives. Our feelings are corrupted. Our minds and thinking are corrupted with sin. Our inner volition and will are corrupted with sin. The situation is dire. God hates sin and will punish it completely. So we exist at this church remembering the fact that we are sinners. 
We remember that about ourselves and we remember it about each other. We exist as sinners. We are corrupt. Our desires are disordered and our assessments and faculties are deeply flawed. We practice self-deception. In 1 John chapter 1, the apostle writes, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. We exist as a church family that understands that Jesus had to be tortured and killed because of us, because of you and because of me. That gives us an amazing opportunity. That gives us an unbelievable invitation to humility. That gives us an unbelievable opportunity to be humble people and teachable people and correctable people. If we remember that we're all fighting the same internal battle with our own motives, then we can be patient with each other and long-suffering with each other. But let me name a massive temptation in our day specifically related to our understanding of sin and our own attitude toward the sin inside of us. Because sin's always alive on the inside before it's expressed on the outside. In order to tell a lie, you first have to believe a lie. In order to tell a lie, you first have to be duped in your heart and soul. We have a powerful allergy deep in our hearts to saying things Plainly, There's a huge temptation crashing all around us for us to rename and redefine what sin is in the world right now. We have a huge and powerful allergy or reaction to speaking plainly in terms like, I lied, I cheated, I deceived, I slandered, I tattled, I gossiped, I was a busybody. I relished other people's failure, and on and on and on. We make insane excuses, and we have unsophisticated ways that we rename sin, and we have really like unusually complex and sophisticated ways that we rename sin. And the truth is, is that we can't get at the heart of what's going on if we can't name what's going on, and we can't confess and experience cleansing and true healing if we can't name our sin for what it is. In some ways that we tend to hide our sin is by giving it harmless names like mistakes or shortcomings or struggle or confusion or difficulty. And let me be clear, there is a real difference between mistakes that we make and sins that we commit. But usually the real problem isn't that we're uh, erring on the side of taking too much ownership. Usually the real problem is that we're erring on the side of listening to kind of like sinister deception that helps us get really, really good at naming our sins something that we can live with. It's hard to say, I'm a gossip. It's hard to say, I'm prideful. I'm arrogant. I reviled that person. I scorned. I'm a mocker. When was the last time that you remember confessing your quarreling or confessing your coveting like the Apostle Paul does? Or when was the last time that you confessed of jealousy or envy? 
Many times I hear people name sin like jealousy or envy, but not in an effort to uh, not in an effort to repent of it, almost in an effort to just name more awareness about their own exploration of their self or to excuse it or to brush it under the rug. We have sophisticated ways to ignore sin and sweep it under the rug, but that's not the road to change. It's not the road to wholeness. It's not the road to freedom. Seeing, acknowledging, confessing, and repenting Turning to Jesus, who already paid the price for your sin. Let me be super clear. Turning to Jesus Christ, who already paid the price for your sin. Turn to Jesus so that your sin can be dealt with and your fellowship with God can be unhindered. We exist here knowing and admitting that we're sinners. So let's confess our pride. Let's confess our arrogance. Let's confess our selfishness. Let's confess our slander. Let's confess our disobedience. Let's confess our gossip or greed or laziness or deception or apathy or anger or entitlement or sexual immorality. Let's be free people in this church. And what I mean, I mean all the way free. Jesus has already paid for it all. He's already paid for all of it. We don't have to coddle it or rename it or categorize it or keep it. We can let it go. So, universally, we exist as created beings beholden to the living God. Universally, we exist as sinners in need of the grace of God. And universally, we exist as new creation who are being transformed into the image of Jesus. We exist as new creation. Through the resurrection of Jesus, he becomes the new creation. Jesus becomes the second Adam, the Adam of a new race of people. And from Jesus, the redeemed people of God receive his perfect righteousness. Through his representation and headship of his church, that frees us to exist as grateful people, as free people, as people with light hearts, joyful hearts, rejoicing hearts, stewards of every single thing that we have. And, 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 and it still isn't about us. That's good news. Creation wasn't about us in the beginning and new creation won't be about us either. It will be about Christ always. It's all about Christ. It's about God's glory in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Amen. Behold, the new has come. When you repent and come to Jesus, you participate in something. You're not a spectator. You're not a watcher. You're not a consumer. You participate in his death and resurrection through faith. In this passage, believers are referred to as new creations because we've died through Christ's death and we live through Christ's resurrection life. Christ died for everyone who believes and likewise, everyone who believes has died, has died so that you don't have to live self-oriented lives. You, you, can, you can live Christ-focused, Christ-oriented lives. Christ is he who for your sake died and was raised. You don't have to be afraid of anything. You don't have to be afraid of any hardship on the outside that's challenging you in your life. And you do not have to be afraid of any 
sin that you're afraid to confess from the inside in your life. You don't have to delude yourself into believing that you can be self-sufficient or self-subsistent or try to create your own identity. You don't have to live on the treadmill of looking out for number one. You don't have to obey your own personality proclivities. You aren't a slave to your own sensibilities. You I don't care if it's your personality or your past. If you're in Christ, it does not define you. Who you are is most fundamentally defined by Christ. You're not a slave even to your own ideas about yourself. We exist here in this place as slaves of Jesus Christ and not slaves to anything else. You don't have to try to define yourself here. You don't have to worship yourself here. You don't have to live a judgmental or entitled life here. You don't have to live a life that's self-obsessed or self-focused or self-absorbed. You don't have to prop yourself up so that other people notice you or pay attention to you. You, believer, Christian, brother, sister, friend, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. If you're in Christ, your sins are gone. If you're in Christ, your sinful flesh does not have the same power over you. If you're in Christ, God is your smiling and loving and singing Father over you. If you're in Christ, nothing you can do and nothing that can be done to you can separate you from God's love for you. If you're in Christ, you're reconciled to God and there isn't any conflict on this earth that can't be reconciled. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is the fight of the Christian life. Your fight with your sin and my fight with mine. Not your fight with your wife's sin or your wife's fight with her sister's sin. Your fight is with your own struggle inside you. What's right in front of your face, the fight that's in front of you right now is for the deepest fellowship with God that you can get through ongoing repentance, ongoing confession and repentance. The fight for your life is the fight to believe. The fight for your life is the fight to believe what's already true about you. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your bodies. You don't belong to you. So, don't live like you do. Don't live your life like it's yours. Live your life to glorify God because you belong to God. You belong to God both because he created you. He created you and gave you the life that you have. And if you're a believer, he bought you with the precious blood of his son. Live like, a, live like creatures and listen to your creator who speaks through his word when he says in Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Right now in your hearts, there are desires inside of you who are, that are trying to trick you. Right now inside your hearts, there are desires inside of you that are trying to dupe you and deceive you and trick you and get you to believe something that's not true. 
Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We exist here as a people who are redeemed. We exist here as a people who are humbled by our own sinful blunders and our continuing struggle in our fight against sin. And we exist as lowly creatures who need God for everything. And we need him for everything all the time, not only when it hurts. That's the worldview. That's the assumption. That's the position that's baked into those two little words, we exist. We don't create ourselves. We don't define ourselves. And we don't save ourselves. We exist at the mercy of God. And because of his infinite goodness, both in this creation and in the new creation that's already already begun inside of you. If you're united through faith with Christ this morning, what I want to do is I want to invite you to celebrate that by coming to the front of the room for communion. We invite all Christians that are living in obedience to Jesus to come forward to take communion. But if you're here this morning, for whatever reason, we're glad you're here. If that's not you, we invite you to pray. We'll have prayer ministers that are over here to my left underneath this window who would love to pray for anyone for any reason, any time. But if you have questions this morning or doubts this morning or that's not you, I'd invite you to pray and stay in your seat. And I challenge the rest of us to take this opportunity to examine our own hearts. I, take, I, I, want, us, I want us to look in, ask the Lord for focus and ask him to give us some place where we have lived our life like it is our own. Or we've lived our life and been self-righteous or prideful, forgetting that we're all sinners. We're all sinners. We're all um, in need of the exact same grace. Where have we neglected to live like we're new creatures in Christ, giving everything that you have to live this life to the glory of God alone? This is the road to deep fellowship and communion with God. This is the road to continual repentance. And it's the road to experience the loving, pure, powerful grace of the living God. And he is eager to give it to us over and over and over again. So if you're a Christian this morning, I invite you to come down to the front for communion. The way we do that here is... um, We break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. We'll have a station right here to my right and left and a station in the center that is gluten-free and single serve. And we'll have a station up in the balcony as well. When we take communion every week, we are proclaiming something. We are announcing something, one to another and to the watching world, that this is the only way. There's no other road, no other path, no other option, no other, no other way. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim 
the Lord's death until he comes again. So I'm going to invite the communion servers up and the worship team back up. And just like Jesus did, I'm going to give thanks. And after I pray, um, you can come up and take communion whenever you're ready. So, Jesus Christ, we look to you. We submit to you. We make a choice to rejoice in the fact that you are in control of every, everything, that you are Lord over everything. Jesus, you are Lord over every single specific detail of my life. You reign and rule. You are not um, caught off guard. You are not distracted. You are not discouraged. You are achieving all of your purposes. We give thanks that you gave your body. We give thanks that you gave your blood. We give thanks that you sacrificed yourself to pay the price for all of our sin, all the way to the bottom, and to give us all of your righteousness so that we could live this life and the next in communion with the glorious God that created us. Give us faith as we eat. Give us comfort, conviction, Strengthen us, I ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Come up when you're ready.